All of us here at Burn It All Down want to send our love to the transgender community, particularly to trans youth in Texas. In the wake of the horrific directive issued by Texas Governor Greg Abbott last week, stating that parents of trans minors should be reported to state authorities for child abuse if it appears they are allowing their children to get gender-affirming care. As gut-wrenching as this directive is, it did not come out of nowhere. It is merely a continuation of the onslaught of legislation in recent years targeting the rights of trans and non-binary people, particularly children. As we have covered on the show before, many of these bills use the deceptive and, frankly, bullshit framing of saving women's sports as an excuse to enact transphobia into law. In January, Texas became the 10th state to enact a law banning transgender girls from playing on girls' sports teams and transgender boys from playing on boys' sports teams. Here at Burn It All Down, we support transgender inclusion in sports. Today's episode is about the Paralympics, but we will continue to cover these attacks against trans youth and trans athletes on the podcast. And we want to direct you to two websites, transtexas.org and equalitytexas.org. That's transtexas.org and equalitytexas.org, where you can go and directly make donations to help protect trans kids in Texas. Also wanted to mention that on February 17th, we published an interview with Julie Kliegman, the chief copy editor at Sports Illustrated on trans athletes in the NCAA. We discussed the fight to stop trans swimmer Leah Thomas from competing and the importance of loudly fighting against the trans sports bans sweeping the nation. Hello, friends. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Lindsay Gibbs, captain of the ship today, and I'm so thrilled to be joined by all four of my co-hosts, Dr. Amir Rose Davis, Shereen Ahmed, Jessica Luther, and Dr. Brenda Elsie. Today, we're all together because we're doing a mega Paralympics preview. The Paralympics are in Beijing from March 4th, which is this Friday, through March 13th. There are five sports, alpine skiing, Nordic skiing, para ice hockey, snowboarding, and wheelchair curling, and we're going to be giving a breakdown of all five today. But before we get into our sport-by-sport preview, we're going to take a few minutes to discuss Russia's devastating invasion of Ukraine and look at its impact on the Paralympics, the sports world at large, and also just hold some space for all of our thoughts and feelings. I want to note that we recorded this episode on Sunday morning, February 27th, and I'm re-recording this intro on Tuesday, March 1st, right before it publishes. Wanted to give you an update on where things stand right now. On Monday, the IOC, International Olympic Committee, advised that athletes and officials from Russia and Belarus should be banned from all international sporting events. In instances where Russian and Belarusian athletes cannot be removed from competition, the IOC recommended that they should compete as neutrals, meaning um, no athlete or team should be able to use the name Russia or Belarus. 
and also to take away all national symbols, colors, flags, anthems, etc. However, the IOC did say that if all of this is not possible on short notice, such as the Paralympics this week, then they leave the decision to the relevant event organizers to address the issue. Right now, officials from around the world are en route to Beijing, and so the International Paralympic Committee will not meet until Wednesday to discuss whether it will ban Russia and Belarus from the Paralympics. Should be a decision early Wednesday morning or even possibly Tuesday night here in the States. I also wanted to add that on Monday, Ukrainian athletes wrote an open letter to IOC President Thomas Bach and International Paralympic Committee President Andrew Parsons urging them to immediately suspend the Russian and Belarusian National Olympics and Paralympic Committee. The letter was also signed by Fencer Sofia Belakaya, a two-time Olympic champion from Russia and the chair of the Russian Olympic Committee's Athletes Commission. So that's a big deal. If the IOC and IPC refuse to take swift action, you're clearly emboldening both Russia and Belarus's violation of international law and your own charters, the letter said. Your legacy will be defined by your actions. Okay, friends. So as we know this week, Russia <laughs> invaded Ukraine this is technically a break of the Olympic truce, which starts a week before the Olympics and ends a week after the Paralympics. Russia has violated the Olympic truce three times in 14 years, fighting a war with Georgia over the disputed territory of South Ossetia during the 2008 Beijing Summer Olympics, and then launching a military takeover that annexed the Crimean Peninsula of Ukraine after the 2014 Sochi Winter Olympics, but during the Paralympic Games. We talked in our show last week about when we were talking about doping, about how little the IOC has done to stand up to Russia in any meaningful way. And I think while a much more extreme example, this would be a, another example of how violating this Olympic truce uh, has really impacted nothing. Um, the Ukrainian Paralympic team has... 29 people in it. They are still trying to get to Beijing, but are saying that it's going to be obviously a mammoth challenge. And, you know, a big part of the Olympic truce is making sure there's safe passage for all the athletes to the games. But uh, I just kind of want to go around and ask everyone kind of for their thoughts and feelings. Jess, you want to get us started? Yeah, I want to let everyone know that the IOC has strongly condemned what Russia's doing for whatever that oh. whatever that means. Uh, yeah, I think this is incredibly distressing. Um, I'm concerned about all of these athletes. Uh, I think there's been talk about whether or not Russia and Belarus, whether or not their athletes will be allowed to compete in the Paralympics, and that's still up in the air and worrying about the Ukrainian athletes trying to get to the Paralympics, even if they do. What does that mean for their ability to focus and compete when who knows what's happening with their families and their friends and their homes? Uh, just it's a reminder, again, that sports are always political, especially for the athletes who are living through these moments and facing the ramifications of them in their daily lives. And so, again, sort of the IOC trying to remain neutral in these moments is so ridiculous on its face. Shereen? Yeah, the whole like invasion process and not just 
within sports, but you know, it obviously affects the lives of athletes, their families and whatnot. And there's been so many conversations, you know, gearing up before the Paralympics. And we'll talk about the importance of this region within the Paralympics and particularly in winter sports. But I mean, there's things that I think about. I think about the ways that uh, athletes are questioned, Russian athletes in particular, the way that Alex Levechkin was asked uh, questions in a presser. And I think that, you know, he has had a longstanding support, a public support of Putin. And I think that's important to address. But at the same time, he mentioned three times in the interview that his family is still in Russia. So th these demands from Western audiences to have players that are Russian or from that region say what they want is unacceptable. Like it's more complicated than that. There's safety, there's panic. Um, and I think that that is, is hard. There's WNBA players who are playing right now in the offseason in Russia. Are they safe? Are they okay? What is happening? Can they come back? You know, and I think about the evacuation of athletes a lot as someone who has worked directly with evacuation of Afghan refugees and athletes very recently, there was not this outcry. And I do have to say that as someone who comes from a community, there was a vast, there was a huge call for refugees and asylum seekers. The response is not the same. And I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm so excited to see Robert Lewandowski, one of the world's top footballers call for not playing Russia. But quite frankly, where is the call for boycotting Israel, the state of Israel? Where is the call for that? And I can't help. I'm never going to discourage refugees from being accepted anywhere. This is a right of humanity. But it makes me think the double standards and the gates that are put up for different communities. And whiteness plays a part here. Definitely. I'm also reading, uh, you know, reports of Nigerian students who are trying to evacuate Ukraine being rejected in Poland at the border. And this is unacceptable in many, many levels. Like, are we really accepting embracing people? Or are we really accepting whiteness? And this is something within sport we also have to look at. Yeah, certainly. And I think it's um, really important to point out that we can't afford to be ahistorical at this time. There was a tweet that made my blood boil because it was like, I have never seen, I can't think of any historical parallel for the way that Ukrainians are are standing up for themselves against the aggressor ever. And this, mind you, is a top policy advisor for the United States congressional. <laughs> like, it's scary, right? And like under the thread was a number of examples from Palestinians to Apaches to actually a million First Nation and Indigenous peoples, uh, Maoris, like, just on and on, obviously, Black Americans. And I think you're absolutely right, Shireen. There, there's a way that you have all the empathy and resolve and, and pour resources into uh, and, and towards Ukrainians at this moment. I know I've been checking in with my um, contacts in Ukraine, scholars that I've worked with, and you want safety and health and all of that. And also, as we do, you think about media and framing. And I think all of that is really important. And then it's also like the the gist of it. I, I sent this to Brenda and, and Jess in that long thread. Somebody popped a graphic. This will bring it back to sports about people who have withheld or stood up to uh, assaults they've never seen. And it was the Celtic uh, Barcelona graphic when <laughs> Barcelona had had like nine, 955 passes, 89% possession, like 
27 targets on goal and they still lost. And it was just like, you know, there's always a way that people, whether even in a thread or what we're talking about geopolitically, are going to tie it back to sports. And I wanted to affirm that when we say sports is political, these are the moments we're talking about. Lindsay at the top of the show talked about all of these actions that Putin has taken around the Winter Games and in violation of the Olympic ordinances. And I think the the last thing that I'll say about that is that we have looked at the Olympics to watch how Russia has been unchecked and even sanctions there, right? I mean, just a few weeks ago during the opening ceremonies, we saw the athletes from Russia compete, like, walking in with their flag on their sleeve, which is a violation of the sanctions that they got for doping in the games, nobody did anything about. The IOC didn't do anything, right? And on a small level, we can see what happens when there are sanctions or, you know, violations that everybody's like, oh, that, don't do that. And they just do anyways. And this is on a larger scale, what we've been seeing as a pattern for years. Bren? I mean, obviously, the images and the reports and the interviews that are coming out of Ukraine are terrible and um, really disturbing and distressing, looking at lines of people trying to get out of the country. So let me just preface what I'm about to say um, by saying, obviously, like we care very much about victims of the Russian invasion. At the same time, if I could count the number of times that the U.S. violated the Olympic truce. I couldn't. I don't have that many fingers. You know, years and years of invasion of Afghan, you know, <laughs> violations of every kind of human rights, drones, weddings. I just, the flashes of the last 25 years of the United States invading um, country upon country upon country, um, much less when I was a child and it was Nicaragua and it was El Salvador and um, supporting dictatorships all over the world. And I just have to say, those same people are bemoaning this. And I just, it's so frustrating to see it. So I guess it's about fraught solidarity. It doesn't make me hurt any less or feel any less sad for what's going on. Um, But I think what we can do is what a lot of times we don't do is pay attention to the democratic and anti-authoritarian movements in Russia, 2018 at the World Cup, we saw Pussy Riot. People just let that go by. People didn't look at that. People didn't care that they ended up in jail right after. Those are the type of people we have to start to support. Fedor Smolov, the Dynamo striker, the footballer who played every single match for Russia in 2018 has spoke out and it's incredibly dangerous. He's in Moscow right now suiting up and he's saying this is wrong. I oppose the war. I'm Russian. He is a major Russian footballer. So I guess I'm really heartened to see this, and I wish we were paying more and more attention because what what I think we really want is for this to be damaging to Putin internally in Russia because that's what's going to make him come to the table and stop these terrible things um, that are happening. And just to say one last thing, working for FAIR, 
Um, there are steps that organizations with people on the ground in sports are calling for and asking for, and they aren't asking for the United States to invade Russia, okay? So like, <laughs> first of all, no one's saying that. So stop listening to Tucker Carlson. Don't wait for this to be used against Biden because it will be by conservatives here. What you should be doing is looking at the organizations that are there. I feel like we should all be doing that. And so FAIR did put out a statement as to what we could do. Um, things like definitely cutting the Russian Federation, um, being able to compete in anything, whatever about the individual athletes. These individual athletes, including Fedor Smolov, are saying it's okay. Cut ties with them, <laughs> you know? Can I just say right on top of that, because this matters to Putin, We so she happened. Doping happened in 2014 because these sports matter on a political level to the ruler of this country. So, like, that is incredibly important. I was just going to say that um, in addition to all the other organizations speaking out, the IFS, International Fédération du Ski, the governing body, postponed all qualifications and tournaments and events in Russia. And I mean, this is important because what it does is it takes it away. But I think I'd like to see consistency, too, as opposed to helicopter in and let's band-aid solution this and think of something a little more consistent. And, and solidarity is important and safety of athletes is paramount. But I think that this speaks to it, like taking things away and saying this is not normal is something that you know Russia may not be used to in terms of rules and rule following and I'd like to see it happen more in the future and the camaraderie right that that Brenda is gesturing to is like the worst fear for (laughs) oligarch and and totalitarian leaders right and so when when we say war is everywhere when we talk about airstrikes like when brenda brings this up i mean hello in the last 48 hours united states has started to um do airstrikes in somalia again there's been 37 saudi airstrikes in yemen israel airstrikes have rained down in damascus in the last 48 hours along with what we're seeing in ukraine and when we bring that up it's because by pointing to that we can unite the voices of athletes of lay citizens across the world who are condemning war, condemning authoritarian regimes, condemning, you know, oligarchs in power. And like, that is what movement building looks like. So when we say we can't be historical, when we say we can't invisibilize the rest of this is because it's all connected. And and I'll leave you with this really great tweet I saw, which was like, if it all feels too much, if it feels like too many things in the world are happening, the good news is that they're all connected. So if you can only work on your little thread in your corner and you can pull that one thread of what you work on, what you're focusing on, what you're expert in, you're still helping to unravel this entire yawn ball of fucked up worldness that we're all contending with. So if you're new to thinking about Ukraine and Russia, or if you're new to thinking about um refugees in in a larger sense, right? If you're new to doing media analysis, keep pulling on that thread while you learn about others. And together, we can hope to unravel this mess a little bit more. I want to talk a little bit about the Ukrainian Paralympic team since we're about to go into a Paralympic preview because as Samir just so brilliantly said, this is all connected. So one thing is like Ukraine is actually like a very, very good Paralympic team, which is given their size and also apparently the way they actually treat 
people with disabilities and the disabled within their own country is uh, it's it's would not be expected that they would be this good of a team. But they've been in the top six countries in the medal count at nine consecutive Paralympic Games, summer and winter despite consistently being ranked among the poorest countries in Europe and cited by the United Nations as a difficult home for people with disabilities. That's from the New York Times. Um, one of the reasons it's so shocking that they've been so successful is because when Russia annexed Crimea in 2014, they effectively cut Ukraine's Paralympic attenders off from their high-performance training center on the Black Sea, full of the adaptive equipment They had to figure out how to get that into a government-controlled part of eastern Ukraine, and it's still in the process of being rebuilt, and obviously this will impact that so much more. And um, the president of the Ukrainian Paralympic Committee, Valerie Shushkovich, put out a statement on Facebook that's been translated, but I'm going to read it to you said, I want to point out that this is the second time during the Paralympic Games that Russia has attacked Ukraine. The situation is especially cynical to start a war during the Paralympic Games. Most of all, from war, from bombs, shells, and rockets that fall on Ukrainian soil, people with disabilities suffer. Um, And so that's uh, another of the Paralympic Games themselves (laughs) uh, came out of uh, after a lot of these sports were adaptive sports, came after World War II when the soldiers um, came home and were missing limbs. So it's just another kind of connection to this all. But we want to talk about these sports. We want to talk about these athletes. And I think let's just dive right in. Shireen, can you get started with sledge hockey, please? 100%. So fun fact, it's actually known as para ice hockey. And in the US, it's called sled hockey. In Canada and Europe, it's called sledge. I also love you for saying sledge hockey. I'm glad that I'm converting all the Americans to say sledge, kind of like the took took uh, beanie conversation. I think it's because Shireen wrote it in the preview as sledge <laughs> hockey. I really did not. <laughs> Oh, we just felt Tressa, our producer, actually wrote sledge hockey. You're right, Shereen. This is how change happens. I've been working on Tressa. <laughs> I've been working on Tressa. Um, so I, th- there's so many interesting things. And first, I'm going to start off by saying I interviewed Canadian sledge hockey legend Billy Bridges last week in a fantastic interview just before he left for Beijing. And that is so informative. So I really, really encourage people to listen to that. He talks about his journey. He talks about the process of being a Paralympian and of a sport that is on the rise. And one of the things I want to say is the only requirement, according to you know the research I've done for this, to play sledge hockey is that you have to have a disability that prohibits you from playing stand-up. Now, they do encourage able-bodied players to play sledge hockey as well, but just not in the elite competitions. So like in terms of local leagues and stuff, you're more than welcome. Um, Also, sled and sledge hockey in Canada and the U.S. respectively are actually governed by Hockey Canada and U.S. hockey. They don't have their own federation or association. They're funded and supported by those main organizations that you have heard a lot about on this show. So sledge hockey is really interesting. It actually originated in the 1960s in Sweden, and it was a form of rehabilitation and exercise created by physicians and physiotherapists for those with injuries or with disabilities. And it actually 
started to pick up. So by 1969, Stockholm, Sweden had like a five-team league. So then it just really gradually started to to come up and it was first demonstrated, and I say demonstrated, at the Paralympic Winter Games in Sweden in 1976, and then again at the 1988 Paralympic Games in Innsbruck. Where is Innsbruck? What is Innsbruck? Do we know? Fuck is Innsbruck? I don't even know. It sounds like it's in Massachusetts. in Austria. <laughs> in the brook. Well, we're not geographers, okay? Up in here. <laughs> it's it's in the Alps and it's long been a destination for winter sports. There you go. Okay. It became an official event in Lillehammer in 1994. I know where Lillehammer is. Um there have been huge advances in player skill and in and within equipment, something Billy also did speak about. And for many para athletes in sledge hockey they create their own sleds they literally he talks about creating his own stick and on the end of the stick there are little like teeth that help you because you navigate using your arms and the stick I think that that's that's super cool um and it is actually a sit-down version of hockey like you see sitting volleyball and stuff this is very similar but obviously it's on ice and the same rules apply there's six players to each team, three forwards, two defensemen, and a goalie, uh, substitutes made, etc. Periods used to be 15 minutes in length, but now there's three periods of 20. And it's played on a regulation size rink with standard nets and pucks. Um, the critique that I have of this, obviously, because we're not by it if we don't have that, is that sledge hockey does not have a women's event. That's something that, again, was referenced in my discussion with Billy. I do really want to say that the hockey us canada hype is real here and the first game starts on march the 5th and us has been probably the strongest team in the world for the last six years so we'll be really excited i will be watching this i also really want to encourage people to watch this i believe you can watch it cbc gem on streaming and nbc peacock other thing i just want to say really really quickly if you're interested the usa has a sled lending program so if you have someone in your community that's interested we'll add these links in the show notes you can actually borrow equipment and look at it and there's leagues in ontario saskatchewan bc for sledge hockey that i think people really if you know somebody or have somebody in your community or in your family that you want to introduce to this it, it would be amazing so i'm a big fan so the team's competing in sledge hockey um the Russian Paralympic Committee for now, but we'll keep you updated. South Korea, USA, Canada, Czech Republic, Italy, Slovakia, and for the first time ever, China is sending a sledge hockey team, which is going to be great. And again, these games are from the 5th of March to the 13th. That's awesome. I got a geography lesson and so much more. Um, I do want to look, am I going to plug my own work here for a second? Uh, yes, but I did. And 2018, when I was still with Think Progress, uh, right before the Pyeongchang Olympics, I did an article about women's sled hockey, which was fighting USA hockey for recognition. But I learned a lot from that about sexism in this sport. And I think it's important to um, to be thinking about that as we watch these para games. Alpine skiing here at the Paralympics. 
there's going to be 220 male and female athletes. I do not have the exact gender breakdown here, but there are an equal number of events. This sport in particular, as I was mentioning in the intro, it evolved from the efforts of disabled veterans in Germany and Austria during and after the Second World War. And it was uh, in 1976. I think that was the first Winter Paralympics. There were two Paralympic Alpine events. They've got downhill slalom, giant slalom, super G, super combined, and team events. Um, historically, Austria, USA, and Germany do really, really well. Um, there are three categories of impairment. You have the standing skiers, the sitting skiers, and the, and the vision impairment. Uh, I took a big detour looking into these sit skis or mono skis, as they're called. Oh, my gosh. These things are really cool. I was looking at a photo from like one of the first sit skis where it literally looked like there's just like this tiny strap, like they're like strung onto top of this like mono ski. And now it's like this, you know, device that bends and moves with their body and absorbs impact. And so lots of scientific advancements there, which I, I love to see. Um, so within each of those categories, there are subcategories. So for example, like, in uh, standing, one category is just for double leg amputation above the knee and moderate to severe cerebral palsy. Another category is single leg amputation above the knee. For sitting, the different categories have to do with how much mobility and abdominal function you have. So you're competing directly against athletes of all different abilities, even within the standing, sitting, and visually impaired categories. So there's like a factoring system. So I'm going to try and explain this simply, even though I don't fully understand it. So what we've got is we've got the three categories of standing, sitting, and vision impairment. But within those categories, you have a wide range of impairments. And it's hard to find enough competition to compete against people with exactly the same impairment as you do. And yet it's not always equal in the standing category. You know, you can have someone who's has a leg amputation and racing against someone with an arm amputation. So the factoring system is a mathematical equation done by the people behind the scenes looking at all sorts of times that essentially is factored into the final time to try and even the playing field. Um, and this allows a lot more competition, which the athletes seem to love. It's not that controversial. And the cool thing is it's included in the times we're watching. So if you're just watching it, unless you have your stopwatch out, <laughs> you're probably not going to notice that there's a difference because the time shown on the screen will be the time that already includes the factor via impairment. So want to talk a little bit about how there's this, you know, we, we talk about how everything's connected. And I was reading a story about a U.S. Paralympian, um, Thomas Walsh, who got COVID earlier this year, recovered from it. It was a very tough recovery because he was an ewing sarcoma cancer survivor and recovering from COVID period was so much more difficult. And even after he recovered, he was still testing positive because we know that happens in some cases. And it, it took a lot for him to finally get the negative, but he just got the negatives. He will be able to compete. That's a good story. Um, 
on the U.S. team, Laurie Stevens is 37 and has been in four Paralympics, seven Paralympic medals. And uh, we love rooting for our late 30s and up people. So we'll be cheering on Laurie. And, you know, the youngest uh, Paralympian in the U.S. team is 17 on this alpine skiing team. So wide range there. And the real star to look out for is Annalena Forrester uh, of Germany. She's a sit skier and should win some golds, dominating force. And one last thing, the New York Times, can't believe I just keep plugging, but they actually did this phenomenal interactive piece with Millie Knight, a British Paralympic skier who competes in all five disciplines. She lost most of her sight by the age of six. And it makes, it like simulates what it's like to ski down the hill blind. Like they've got sound, uh, cause oh, for the visually impaired skiers, they ski with a guide who's giving them audio clues. They take you off the hill. It is a phenomenal piece of like interactive journalism. It really makes you feel like, uh, which honestly, I don't know if you want to feel like you're skiing down the hill blind cause that's just <laughs> terrifying, but uh, it gives you quite an appreciation. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, next up, we're going to go to snowboarding. Yes, so I want to talk to you about para-snowboarding, which is also called adaptive snowboarding when we're talking about it outside of the Olympic context. The event is currently made up of two different parts of the event. Uh, the first one is snowboard cross, and this is all about speed, and it is a time trial. You get three runs. Um and at the first time trials, you're doing it by yourself. It's just about you and the clock. Um, and then the fastest times from those early time trials places you into the head-to-head -head brackets. And so these finals consist of two people going head-to-head -head, um, down the course. The fastest rider uh, advances to the next round until you get a champion. And then in addition to snowboard cross, you also have bank slalom. Um, this is only one person at a time and it's still a time thing, but this is what we've come to associate with slaloms. You're going to have lots of bumps and dips and kind of chaos, right? Lots of obstacles to get through as you're coming down um, to try to get the fastest time. Before I go much further, I did want to talk about and pay homage to a very important woman 
um, who really is the pioneer of Paris snowboarding. Um, and that is Vivian Mental Spee. Vivian Mental Spee was a snowboarder. And while training for the 2002 Winter Olympics, which she had qualified for, uh, she discovered that she had a bone tumor. It was very apparent that this tumor was growing quite fast. And she actually had to pull out of the Olympic um, trial process and have her leg amputated. Shortly after amputation, like within six months, she was back on the snowboard again um, and trying to figure out how she could still do the sport she loved. Uh, And she started to compete in the Dutch Snowboard Cross Championship. She's a Dutch woman. And it inspired her to work with the International Paralympic Committee in um, the Netherlands to figure out how to get snowboard adopted as a medal event at the Paralympic Winter Games. At this time, it was only in the World Kind of Federation Games and not at the Olympic level. And this is something that she lobbied for uh, for 10 years. Um, And it was finally included in the 2014 Winter Para Games, which she qualified for. She was the flag bearer for the Netherlands, and she took home the gold medal in the snowboard cross. She continued to work hard at getting adaptive snowboarding included in the Paralympic movement and expanded. However, in the lead up to the 2018 Games, she was unable to participate in any of the lead up events due to reoccurring medical complications. Even though the sport continued to expand because of her lobbying, they even added bank slalom. But her sponsors had given up on her, including the Dutch Sports Federation, who didn't support her at all. So she crowdfunded her way to Pyeongchang in 2018, um, where she once again was elected flag bearer and once again won the gold medal in snowboard cross and the gold medal in the new bank slalom event. I bring this up because um, she continued to be Um, battling cancer through all of this. Um, And last year in 2021, um, she had terminal brain cancer and passed away. Um, And so this will be the first Olympic Games in which we don't see her, um, but the legacy uh, that she's given to this sport is so apparent. And many of the Paris snowboarders are, are lifting her up as we move into these competitions. So what we will see this year in the 2022 Paralympics are those two events, Bank Slalom and Snowboard Cross. What we won't see is equitable representation of women as we've come to be a pretty old record at this point. Um, in particular, there's one fight for inclusion that I really want to draw your attention to because I think it points a larger picture of, of some of the barriers to participation in para games that we want to talk about. Um, and that's the matter of classification. So at the Winter Games, we will see para snowboarders competing in the SBLL1. That's a significant impairment to one leg. There are no women in that event, so we'll get right back to that in a second. The SBLL2, which is impairment in one or both leagues, which is a little less um, limitations. And then um, SBUL, which is upper limb impairment that affects balance. So two years ago, they removed female athletes from the LL1 classification, saying there wasn't enough numbers to have that event. However, Paris snowboarders Brenna Huckabee and Cecile Hernandez petition to still be included because that would cut their category out of the Olympics. They are medalists. They are reigning Olympians. um, And they were told that they could either compete with the women's LL2 
or the men's LL1, but there wasn't a space for them in the run-up of it. And actually the federations used their fast times to say that even though they were more disabled than the women they would compete against, their times really were competitive. And so they were strong enough to compete. Um, But when the actual Olympic qualifications came up, those provisions about allowing them to compete in the men's LL1 or the women's LL2 were left out of it. They actually were told they were too disabled to compete in Beijing in 2022. So they have been petitioning the Paralympic Games uh, with the help of uh, Paris snowboarders from 12 different countries. They signed appeals, they wrote letters, and just recently in January, they were given the notice that they were both allowed to compete in Beijing, either against the men in LL1 or the women in LL2. Um, And I'll leave you with this quote from them. They said, since the 2014, the Paralympic movement has aimed to include women with leg impairments uh, in the Winter Paralympic Games. We believe having only one category competing in Beijing does not represent inclusion in our sport. We as women competitors are united in promoting our sport and we believe it would be unfair to exclude women with the highest degree of impairment from the most important event. So um, please join me in watching and cheering them on. And I think that um, as I pass the torch on now to um, whoever's talking about a sport next, I do want to leave us with thinking about the way that these classifications can actually really put up barriers. We know at the world adaptive snowboarding level, there are double the amount of things you can compete in, including categories for being blind, being deaf or hard of hearing. Um, there's a lot more opportunities. And then at the Olympic level, the focus on um, how many numbers they have to compete for meddling events really closes that down. So there's a lot of world-class Paralympic athletes or would-be Paralympic athletes who compete in these events who are unable to actually medal or go to the Olympic Games because their classification of disability is not included in the Olympic competition. I'm thankful that Cecile and Brenna will be able to compete, but it's definitely something to watch for. Thank you. I don't know why I said thank you. Like I was giving a good talk. Because you're a Mira Rose Davis. You're Dr. Mira Rose Davis. <laughs> and you're always giving a talk. And we are always grateful uh, for you. <laughs> Bren, wheelchair curling. Oh! Yeah, I'm whoever's talking a sport next. <laughs> that'd be me talking about a sport um that i really have learned a lot about over the last 72 hours and um i'm ashamed to say i've never been interested in curling at all i've always kind of like thought chores should be olympic sports and bar games um and i always thought this might be in that category and i was really wrong um it's not the first time today um this is the thing about curling amira's story about snowboarding was really important and moving and this might be a sport where um you feel like supporting it for the opposite reason which is that mixed gender is mandatory in wheelchair curling, um, you you have to have 
uh, mixed genders. And I also love, I realize this, um, because I can watch wheelchair curling and curling, period, without really being terrified as I am with all of the other, every single <laughs> other Olympic winter sport. So I had skeleton for our other winter Olympics, which I'm still reeling from. And I really do feel kind of relaxed in the sense that they aren't probably going to get injured, hopefully, you know, whereas the other sports, I feel like it's just likely. Um, and so this this felt really nice because I could just watch it and and just concentrate on their talent. They are going to be playing from the 5th to the 12th of March. It's at the Beijing National Aquatic Center, which which you're probably familiar with with if you watched last month. And basically how you get in there is the rankings of the last three years of the world wheelchair curling competition. They they basically then allot you a space based on that. The difference is with curling is that there's no sweeping. So none of those brooms, no broom jokes, which is what I was hoping I could do as a shtick here. But nope, you just actually have to throw those stones super, super precisely. And here's another funny thing I found out. You know those stones, you know, like the rocks that are attached to the handles? So there's only two places where the material is made and they're running out of it. So anyway, this is one of the climate change challenges or whatever as we've stripped the world of resources under global capitalism curling is evidently really in in a problematic place in that sense um so the whole curling world right now is kind of thinking about how it might change which i found really interesting okay anyway other things about this wheelchair curling can be played by a really wide range of um, people with disabilities, like all kinds of disabilities. Basically, what you need is a lot of force, a tolerance for cold, precise throwing. It used to be dominated by Canada, Great Britain, and Sweden, but now China has really um, become a dominant force. They won the world championships. Uh, there's a person, Wang Haitao of China. He won the gold medal with his team at Pyeongchang. And he has been on the wheelchair curling team since 2007. And I just want to say it was really remarkable reading his story how in 2007, when he started to uh, first do wheelchair curling, the infrastructure was so bad that he and his teammates had to be carried up and down the stairs by their coach. There weren't even elevators in the training centers that they could get into. And he has really remarked upon how the last years, their success in curling has caused all of push this change, right? So they've become these kinds of um, disabilities advocates, and he's talked about how much the situation has changed for them. So it was really actually kind of heartwarming to think about how they were able to kind of push for these new facilities. And he says that now they're just top, you know, everyone's just out there, the Canadian journalists and stuff saying like, look at these facilities, they're amazing. So that's pretty awesome that sports can contribute to that. Um, just by way, if you are a U.S. listener, the U.S. will open its attempts to win a medal. They're not likely to succeed, um, but 
hey, whenever the U.S. is an underdog, I like it. Let's do it. Um, they are going to open on March 5th against Slovakia. We can all um, watch that on Peacock and the Olympic Channel. I know it's really kind of difficult sometimes to find out information, and that's one of the frustrating things about these athletes who seem so interesting. But there is a medical doctor during the day, by day, Dr. Pamela Wilson on the USA team, who seems just like a super fascinating and fantastic person. So I'm kind of psyched to watch this now that I know more slash something um, about about wheelchair curling and it seems really cool so check out the olympic channel too for these cool instructional videos that'll get you hyped um to watch it incredible jess uh, can you take us home grand finale All right, I have Nordic skiing, biathlon, and cross-country skiing. I just want to start with a caveat that both of these sports are dominated by the Ukrainians and the Russians, and so it's unclear at the time of this recording who of these athletes will actually make it to these Paralympics. So I'm going to give you the rundown, but just know that we don't know at this point who will actually be competing in these two events. I want to start with the para-biathlon. It's cross-country skiing and shooting they have two categories for physical impairments, the sitting and the standing. And then they have vision impairments that compete in one category supported by a guide. So they do um, the same thing where you ski three to five times in a loop. Uh, in between, you stop to shoot a target. If you miss one of the five shots that you take, they immediately punish you. And you have to do a little loop, one for each of the targets that you miss. And then you go back into it. For the parabiathlon, the targets are 10 meters away from you when you go to shoot. There are different sizes for the targets. If you are visually impaired, they're 21 millimeters. If you're um, physically impaired, it's 13 millimeters, the size of the actual target. If you are vision impaired, <laughs> these athletes are spectacular, you aim with your ears. You shoot at the target with an electronic signal the closer to the center of the target, the higher the tone emitted. And that's how they know when to shoot. Incredible. So they do the sprint, the medium distance, the long distance. The men and women do the same distances. This will be different in cross-country skiing. Uh, I do – one of the things about this, I'm going to mention a bunch of athletes. A lot of them do – both of these events, the biathlon and cross-country skiing, the sprint, middle, and long distances, they do a ton of them. So I want to mention Ludmila Lyashenko from Ukraine. She's been at the top of the biathlon for three years. She won a gold, silver, and bronze at the Lillehammer 2021 World Para Snow Sports Championships. I'm going to be talking about Lillehammer a lot because this is sort of the preview event that tells us where everyone is within the sport. In Pyeongchang, uh, Lyashenko won two biathlon bronze and a gold and one bronze in cross-country skiing. She is currently the back-to-back -back world champion in 10-kilometer standing biathlon event. For the sitting biathlon, I want to mention the USA's Kendall Gresh. She won the gold medal for the women's sprint ahead of her idol and teammate Oksana Masters at the Pyeongchang 2018 Paralympic Winter Games. Gresh is so interesting because she just competed in Tokyo. She won a gold medal in the Summer Olympics in the triathlon there. Uh, so that's pretty 
incredible. Um, on the men's side, we have the USA's Daniel Nassen, who won the gold in Beijing, but he is up against some new good competitors. He finished 14th in Lillehammer, which gives you a sign of like how he's struggling within the sport at this point. There will be two debuts of people who can make the medal stand for the men's biathlon. Um, RPC, so the Russian Paralympic Committee's Ivan Goldkov and Ukraine's Vassal Kravchuk. They won gold and silver, respectively, in Lillehammer, so they're people to look out for. For standing biathlon, we just have RPC and Ukraine all over this. Uh, in 2018, two RPC athletes, Ekaterina Rumyantseva and Anna Melanina, won ahead of Ukraine's Lyashenko, who I talked about before. But in Lillehammer 2021, it was a full Ukrainian podium. Alexandra Kononova, Lyashenko, and Yulia Bontenkova-Baman, they had a perfect race for Ukraine, gold, silver, and bronze. They're hoping to do this for the six meters. They also, Ukraine did this for the biathlon standing 10 meters. They swept the podium. Uh, on the men's side for the standing biathlon, I do want to mention Francis Benjamin Daviat, who won gold in Beijing. Uh, but again, he struggled um, against the up-and-comers, RPCs, Vladislav Lakomsev, who won seven golds, three in para-biathlon, and four in para-cross-country skiing at Lillehammer. So he's really coming up behind this French guy. In the, in the vision-impaired part of the biathlon, um, we have another swept podium, but this time it was the Russians who swept the podium. Vera Kalzova won gold in front of her teammates, Ekaterina Razumnaya in silver and Anna Pomparova in bronze. Uh, so if you want to watch the biathlon, it will be happening starting Friday, March 4th, and it'll run an entire week until March 11th because there's so many events. On the other side of this is just straight up cross-country skiing, possibly the most popular event in the Paralympics. It is exactly what you think it is, <laughs> where they just ski like hell. Physical impairments compete in two categories, sitting and standing, while those with vision impairments compete in one category and have a guide. Uh, if you are a, using a sit ski, it's on a frame mounted with bindings onto two cross-country skis. The Paralympic quality sit skis are made of ultra lightweight materials and they're custom made to fit each athlete. Skiers use the classical technique in all cross-country distances until skating was introduced by athletes at the Innsbruck 1984 Paralympic Games. Since then, events have been split into two separate races, classical and free technique. Okay, so this is where we get the sexism in this sport. We have the sprint, the short distance, the middle distance, the long distance, and then we have a mixed relay. But when it comes to the men and women, the men just go for longer. <laughs> like, and again, with now, there's no real explanation. So They'll do 20 kilometers, the women will do 15, they'll do 18, the women will do 15, um, that kind of thing. So it's, an, like I said, it's very popular. And because of the biathlon and the cross country, you get athletes who just rack up the medals when they're good at these sports. So the world's most decorated winter Paralympian is a Nordic skier. Norway's Ronghild Mikkelbust won 27 medals, including 22 golds as a Paralympian. Uh, the USA's eight-time Paralympic wheelchair racing champion, Tatiana McFadden, has actually raced uh, as a cross-country skier before. And then as I mentioned her before, Oksana Masters, she's actually a Paralympic cycling gold medalist and then 
also races in cross country and biathlon. I want to also mention Canada's Brian McKeever is the most decorated male para-cross-country skier. He has 16 medals. This will be his sixth games. He's 42. He has 13 gold medals, two silvers, and two bronze. That's 17 total. That makes him Canada's most decorated Paralympian ever. At Pyeongchang, alongside his guides Russell Kennedy and Graham Nishikawa, he won three gold medals, one in the long distance, the middle, and the sprint version, he also won a bronze in the open relay. And Shreen's excellent interview with Billy Bridges, which I really think everyone needs to listen to, he mentioned Canada's Christina Picton. He said, quote, she is one of the best sledge hockey players out there. But because they do not allow women or they do not have space for women to compete, she switched over into cross-country skiing. Her first time on the snow was in December of 2018. In January of 2020, one year after her first skiing competition, Picton traveled to her first international event in Utah. That was in 2020, where she took third place in the sprint event and middle distance race. So look out for Canada's Christina Picton coming up. And finally, I want to mention Kara Klug who has a guy named Martin Hartle. They're from Germany, and they actually don't have a normal guide-athlete relationship in that he is also her coach. So it works for them. She's a triple world champion in the women's vision-impaired events. She's hoping to improve on her bronze medals from the middle and long distance from the last Winter Olympics in 2018. So you have just an amazing assortment of athletes from all over, but especially from Russia and the Ukraine. So it will be interesting to see how these two different events who actually gets to compete and who actually wins. On this week's interview, which will be out in full on Thursday, Brenda interviews Dr. Bob Edelman on the Russian and Ukrainian sports communities' responses to the invasion and how athletes and fans might turn the tide of sport washing. And it was brought up the concept of an Olympic truth. And oh, gosh, yes. Okay. And what's your what, what's your reaction to that? As we say in uh, scientific circles, the Olympic truth is a pile of crap. Because we wanted to give extra time to our Paralympic preview, we're going to be skipping over burn pile this week. But do you want to give a quick uh, torchbearers? First of all, I want to just shout out my co-hosts a little bit. Want to make sure you're listening to the new season of American Prodigies, uh, which Jessica Luther worked on and Amir Rose Davis is hosting. It is so, so, so good. All about black gymnasts. Um, also, our own Jessica Luther, just racking them up. The Associate Press Sports Editors announced their 2021 awards and in the investigative top 10. Uh, Jessica Luther, along with Nancy Armour, Kenny Jacoby, and Dan Wilkin at USA Today, were in the investigative top 10. And also some other writers we love were in that group as well. Uh, Jenny Varentes of Sports Illustrated at The Athletic, Meg Linehan, Katie Strang, Steph Young, and um, Pablo Maurer for their work on what's been going on in the NWSL and corruption in the NWSL. And then at the Washington Post, Molly Hensley Clancy and Stephen Goff also for their reporting um, on abuse within the NWSL. So it's just great to see a lot of women and a lot of really important work about women's sports get honored. So that's really cool. And then can I get a little drum roll, please? A little mini drum roll for this week. 
We had to mention the U.S. Women's National Team, which reached a settlement with the U.S. Soccer Federation this week. It's a $24 million settlement. So this is U.S. Soccer saying, yeah, you're right. They're, we were not paying them equally. <laughs> that That's a mitt of U.S. Soccer's defeat. And $22 million uh, will go to the players behind the suit. So congratulations to them. It's definitely a landmark moment. What's good is these amazing Paralympians. We cannot wait to watch them. Um, Peacock will have a lot of the coverage if you're in the U.S. And we'll try and put links in the show notes where you can find coverage wherever you are. You know, it looks like a lot of countries are upping their coverage of the Paralympics, which we absolutely love to see. Uh, I'll also be keeping an eye on all the conference tournaments in women's basketball. Those are kind of the biggest things. Um, and that's it for this week's episode of Burn It All Down. The episode was produced by Tressa Versteg. Shelby Weldon is our web and social media wizard. We are part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. You can follow Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen, subscribe, rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. You know all the places for show links and transcripts. BurnItAllDownPod.com. There's also a link to merch at our Bonfire store. And of course, thank you, thank you to our patrons who make all of this work possible. Patreon.com slash BurnItAllDown. It is always a special day when the five of us get together. So thank you all for being here today. Burn on and not out.